Thank you for listening to this sermon from Hope Church, Toronto West. It is our prayer that through these audio sermons, you are challenged and transformed by the Word of God, built up in love and faith, and drawn more to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now as you prepare your heart to receive God's Word, we pray that His Spirit would use the sermon powerfully in your life. So thankful to be back here at Hope Church uh, Toronto West and visit a little bit of the extended uh, church family. Uh, unfortunately, I, I don't know. I don't know if I have good news for you today. Are you the kind of person who would rather hear, you know, do you want the bad news first or the or the good news? Because I'm afraid I have to give you uh, the bad news uh, first. Uh, I'm going to be talking today about temptation from Genesis chapter three. If you don't have a a, a uh, a copy of God's word. Maybe you can open it up on your phone or the ushers are coming up and down uh, the aisle with a, with a copy of the Bible. We're going to be in Genesis uh, chapter three. We're going to be talking about a uh, fighting a temptation. And in order to understand temptation, in order to understand sin and the gospel, you got to understand the bad news first. You don't want to go to a mechanic and say, you know what? Like when I put the brakes on, I hear the screeching sound. And when I turn left, I hear this thud coming from the, uh, from the axle. You don't want a mechanic to say, ah, you know, just keep driving it. I just find cars just kind of level. Th- that's not, that's not helpful. You, you, you want, you want to put the car, let's get it up on the hoist. Let's figure out what's wrong. You don't want to go to the doctor with these strange pains or these, these, these strange things that are happening in your, in your body. And the doctor will just, you know, just say, yeah, it's probably fine. I mean, I, I'm not going to show you what the x-rays and the CT scan says because that'll make you upset. So you're, you're just going to be, you're just going to be fine. Now, if you, if you came here to come to church to be comforted and we all need comfort, then I, I promise you comfort is uh, coming. Take a look at what uh, C.S. Lewis uh, ha- had, had to say uh, on this. I think we have a quote uh, from, from C.S. Lewis somewhere uh, in there that I sent at the end. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's not. C.S. Lewis said something about, <laughs> I, don't, I don't have it in my notes. I, I was hoping it would be on the screen there. C.S. Lewis said something that if you aim for comfort, you'll never get it. But if you aim for truth, then comfort comes in the end. So if the the aim here and what God's word does for us is we ultimately get comfort from God's word because we start uh, with with the truth. Well, let me uh, share with you uh, Genesis chapter 3 verses 1 to 7. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will surely not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Let's pray together. 
Our Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus Christ. We declare, as we have declared, that you are a God of covenant, that you are a God who is good, that you are a God who is worthy of praise from all of your creatures. And so, God, we pray right now, we thank you that you are a God who has spoken, and we pray, Lord, that you would speak right now through your living and active Word. And God, I pray that as your word goes out, as it's taught and explained and illustrated and applied right now, Lord, I pray that, that I would fade very quickly into the background. The people would not merely hear uh, the, the voice of a man speaking about God, but to actually hear the voice of God speaking through a man, through, through your living and active word, by the power of your spirit. And God, we ask these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, sin is a topic that is universally applicable. We are all affected by sin uh, on a societal level. There are sins in our history or sins in our culture or sins in the way that our world functions. And we're all dealing with the consequences of that. We're also living in a creation that, has, that is groaning under the weight of the curse of sin. So sin happens on a societal level. It's happening on a, on a ecological creation level. It also happens on a personal level. People sin against us and people might have sinned against us this week or this morning, or maybe there are things that have been done to us or said to us many years in the past that we are still trying to process and work through. So sin affects us from the outside in. But the truth is, sin also affects us from the inside out. And many of us are still living with some of the consequences of sinful choices that we have made in the past, whether it be far in the past or even more recent. Many of us have already faced significant temptation this morning or even last night. And so what we intend to do here is to look at really the, the origin story of sin. Where did it come from? How did it all go wrong? And we want to sort of look at it in slow motion to kind of uh, analyze it, separate it, so that when we face temptation, we would be able to respond in the way that God wants us to respond. So as we start with God's word today, here's, here's something that I, I want you to jot down if you're taking notes today. First, first and foremost, that we fall into temptation when we begin to doubt God's goodness. We fall into temptation when we begin to doubt God's goodness. God has been on a roll in chapters one and chapter two. He's been creating things and calling them good. There's one, you know, all the planets, all the stars, all the trees, all the vegetation, the sky, the heavens. There's one brief moment where he says it's not good. That's because he hasn't created women yet. Amen, women. And so he says it's not good for the man to be alone. So he, he creates a woman. And, every, and then he declares everything good. And he blesses the man and the woman. He tells them to fill the earth and to have dominion. And, 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 and to rule over all of the creatures. But then in Genesis chapter 3, one of the creatures, a snake, starts talking. There's a talking snake. This character just comes out of nowhere. We know the origin story of the man. We know the origin story of the woman. But why is there a talking snake in Genesis chapter 3? There's no explanation. 
Now, Isaiah chapter 14 and Ezekiel chapter 28, they kind of function like prequels. And there's some stuff in 2 Peter and the book of Jude that, that help us piece together. How did this talking snake end up in the story? We're told at the very, very end of the story in Genesis chapter 12, verse uh, 9, I know that's coming on the screen, that uh, where, where uh, Genesis uh, chapter, uh, sorry, Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, there we go. It's talking about in the very end times, it says, and the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan. That serpent, the ancient serpent, is the devil. He's the deceiver of the whole world, and he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Now, it's significant that we understand that this serpent is described as a creature that God had made. Now, we're not really sure of the dynamics of what was going on here. Is the snake functioning as some sort of like reptilian avatar that, that Satan has like taken over? We're not quite sure how the serpent relates to Satan, but here, here's something we can know for sure. Snakes are creatures made by God, and Satan is a creature made by God. There's no Star Wars, light side of the force, dark side of the force, dualism where you have equal forces of good and evil. No, the serpent is a creature. Satan is a creature. Now, what would this have meant for the original readers of Genesis? Remember, before we apply God's word to ourselves, we got to understand what it means for the original readers. So Moses is writing to the escaped slaves who have been rescued out of Egypt. They're wandering through the wilderness on their way to the promised land. They're facing a lot of temptation themselves. The whole Exodus story and getting set free from Egypt was was filled with temptation. And Moses is writing this to them. And he mentions a talking snake. Now, Living in Egypt for 400 years, the the people of Israel would have been steeped in the Egyptian culture. And we know from the the headdress of King Tut, uh, we we know from from archaeology and all kinds of different images that that pharaohs had a certain headdress. And have you ever paid attention to, to what is right there at the top of the head in the headdress? Go to the next slide. There's a bit of a, a zoom in. It's a snake. The, the Egyptian god Uraeus was a sign of political power and authority. The snake was the ultimate symbol of having wisdom and the ability to rule and to be in charge. And Satan, in showing up as a snake, is giving the impression that he's in charge, that he's the ruler, that he's like Pharaoh. It's a symbol of a world, a counter-kingdom world that is set up against God's rule over all things. So that's what the serpent looked like and what the serpent symbolized. Now let's zero in on what the serpent said. In verse one, he says, did God actually say? He causes Eve to doubt what God says. He brings confusion about what the word of God says. 
Did God actually say, verse one, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? Notice how the serpent exaggerates the prohibition. He replaces the word one with the word all. (laughs) That's a pretty significant change. That's a pretty significant edit that he makes. God said you may not eat from one tree, and yet he replaces the one with the all. And then then he also noticed that he excludes the provision. They were allowed to eat from any of the trees of the garden. The serpent describes God as being unreasonably restrictive. And notice what's going on here. The serpent invites Eve to evaluate whether or not God's commands are appropriate or not. Eve was living in paradise. She was living in perfect relationship with her husband, perfect relationship with God. It never entered her mind to question God's goodness. And yet the serpent, he kind of flatters Eve and says, Eve, what do you think about all of this? Let's let's just take a step back and evaluate what's going on. Is God doing a good job in ruling over his creation? It's like when you start the new job and, you know, the workers are all gathered in the lunchroom and the foreman's not there and they start talking about, well, if I were in charge here, here's what I'd do. Or the principal's not there and in the, in the teacher uh, staff room, everyone's talking or, or the CEO is away at a conference and everyone's saying, well, if I were in charge, I would do it this way. Or why do we got to do this policy? Or why is there this procedure? Why do we got to do all this paperwork? It's kind of like that, except the only difference is that you are fellow human beings talking about another human being. <laughs> and with, you know, the right amount of education or, or luck, you could find yourself in that position of the person. You could be CEO of the company someday or the foreman or the principal of the school. But when here we have two creatures talking about the creator as if they could somehow be in a position of evaluating whether or not God's commands are good or not. Then look at what Eve says in verse two. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So Satan creates this confusion. He asks, did God really say that you can't eat any of the trees? And then Eve gives this paraphrase of the command. So notice here that she, she adds something. She adds that you may, sure, surely eat, you may surely eat of all of the trees of the garden. And then she says that you shall not eat of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. That's true. But then she adds, neither shall you touch it. And then she also changes the part that says, lest you shall surely die. She gets rid of surely. So as, as if we look at Eve's paraphrase here, look at the, uh, let's go to the next slide. Eve forgets God's abundant generosity. She, that part that's underlined, she doesn't mention that in verse two. And then she just says, we may, we may eat of the trees of the garden. Then she exaggerates God's strictness by saying that you can't even touch it. God said, you can touch the fruit all you want. There was no rule against touching the fruit, but she makes God seem more strict than he actually is. And then she downplays the certainty of God's judgment. She gets rid of that word, surely. She just says, lest, you know, you know maybe we'll 
maybe we will die. You see, Eve started to believe the lie that God was holding out on her. Do you think God is holding out on you? Do you think God, you know, comes in and says, well, why are you having such a good time? Turn the music down and enjoy your lukewarm water and saltine crackers. Why are you having this big feast and enjoying yourself? Some of us think that God is like that, that he's unnecessarily restrictive. But God is good. God didn't just create two or three stars. Billions and billions and billions of them. He didn't just create one or two trees in the garden. The tree was filled. The garden was filled with trees that they could eat from and enjoy. God was not restrictive. God is generous. I love how D.A. Carson sums up what what Eve could have said uh, to the serpent. He says, are you out of your skull? Look around. This is Eden. This is the paradise of God. God knows exactly what he is doing. He made everything. He even made me. My husband loves me and I love him. And we are both intoxicated with the joy and holiness of our beloved maker. My very being resonates with the desire to reflect something of his spectacular glory back to him. How could I possibly question his wisdom and love? He knows in a way that I never can exactly what is best. And I trust him absolutely. And you want me to doubt or or question the purity of his motives and his character? How idiotic is that? Besides, what possible good can come from a creature defying his creator and sovereign? Are you out of your skull? What Eve could have said in the garden is what we should say every time we face temptation. That's what we can tell Satan. That's what we can tell the world. That's what we can tell our flesh when we feel tempted. And you know what we can tell God? We can tell him, God, you're so good. Say it with me. God, you're so good. Lift your voices. God, you're so good. You're so good to me. Sorry, I won't sing again. Chris is coming back. I'm not going to lead the last song. But listen, temptation comes when we start to doubt God's goodness. Satan loves to plant those little questions, those little ideas into our mind that God is somehow stingy, that he's a miser. And we need to replace those lies with the truth that God is a God of abundant generosity. And he loves to give. You know, sometimes we quote in church that God loves a joyful giver. Why does God love a joyful giver? Not because he needs anything. God loves a joyful giver because God is a joyful giver. And when we give joyfully, we reflect his character. We're acting like a chip off the old block. So don't ever doubt God's 
goodness. So we fall into temptation, firstly, when we doubt God's goodness. Secondly, when we deny God's word. When we deny God's word. So Satan placed this idea in Eve's heart that she could somehow evaluate God's command. He creates some confusion. Now he's just going to flat out lie. Look at how bold he gets in verse four. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. He just lies. Jesus said in John 8, 44, that Jesus is the father of lies. Can we get John 8, 44 on the screen there? Jesus says that he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. And notice where the lie lands. And it lands on the doctrine of judgment. First, the serpent convinces Eve that she can judge God. Is his command fair or not? So Eve is judging God. Then what Satan does is he tells Eve that God can't judge her. It's all backwards. Eve is judging God. And now Satan is lying and saying that God can't judge her, that you will surely not die. Satan is always trying to deny the doctrine of judgment. You, you think back about uh, ev- all of the sort of debates over the last, you know, 70 to 120 years or so about the, the beginning, the origin of the universe. You know, you go back a couple of chapters and did God create the universe and, and did he speak it into existence in 24 literal, uh, li- uh, literal uh, 24 hour periods or Did the world sort of evolve slowly over this process? At the end of the day, why do people care so much about trying to disprove the creation? It really had nothing to do with the creation. It had everything to do with the judgment. Because if you could prove that there was no God at the beginning, then the implication is that there's no God waiting for you at the end. And so this, this, this lie of this sort of godless, humanistic, uh, evolutionary process, the whole purpose of the lie was just to, to say that God wasn't there at the beginning, so we can assume that he's not going to be there at the end. But read Genesis through Revelation. He's there at the beginning, and he's there at the end. And Satan lied to Eve. He said that she would surely not Die, it was a lie. Eve is not going to walk in through the door today. She's dead. Satan lied to her. And then Satan paints the picture of of this conspiracy. He he says in in verse 5, For God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. God's holding back on you. There's a conspiracy because, because Eve, if you were to find out what was really going on, it would turn out really good for you and really bad for God. God is insecure. God is weak. He's trying to, he's, he's, got, he's trying to keep this classified so that you can't find out about it. Satan's a whistleblower. He's trying to expose the, the, the corruption. There's classified documents. He's... I. Eve, I want you to know the truth. He doesn't want Eve to know the truth. He's lying to Eve. 
He says that you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You will be like God. He's telling this to Adam and Eve who were created and blessed in Genesis chapter one. Look back at what it says at Genesis uh, chapter one and verse 26 on the screen here. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. He's selling Eve something she already owns. You will be like God. She's made in God's, she's already like God. She can't be God. She can't know good and evil the way that God knows good and evil because she's not omniscient and she's not omnipresent. She can't process all that God can process because she's a creature made from a rib and Adam's a creature made from dust. They're limited. They can't be God, but they already are like God. So Satan lies to, lies to Eve, says you will surely not die. He promises her something as a gift, but she already has it. And this is the way temptation works. He denies the judgment. I, I heard someone say once, you know, sin will make you stupid. And it does. Satan is, oh, and our flesh and the world is always trying to make us think about what will make us feel good now. What will make me feel good now? Satan never makes us think about having to one day explain what we're doing to our parents or explain the choices that we made to our spouse or to explain the choices that we made to our spouse and then to our children. Follow the temptation all the way down. Follow it all the way. Say, okay, I'm tempted right now. If I do this, then this will happen in the moment. But what will happen after that? Picture yourself sitting down and talking to your wife about it. Picture yourself sitting down and talking to your children about it how you handled that relationship at work, how you handled that, that money or that business deal, how you handled your credit card or how you handled this or that. Picture yourself, follow it, follow it all the way. Satan only wants you to live right in the moment. Follow it all of the way. Satan denies that there's consequences for our actions. And then follow it, loved ones, all the way to the very end. Picture explaining your actions to the omniscient God who saw the whole thing and nothing is hidden from his sight. The one who has done nothing but be good to us and picture yourself explaining it to him. Don't believe Satan's lies. He just denies God's word. And then thirdly, lastly, and most importantly, we are, we are tempted and we fall into temptation when we desire God's throne. So it starts with doubting his goodness and then that leads to denying his word. His word can't be true because I think he's holding out on me somehow. And then we want to put ourselves on the throne. Look with me at verse six. It says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, 
She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Uh, Adam wasn't like over in the other part of the garden, you know. He was there uh, with her. If you do a Hebrew word study on the word imha, uh, with, uh, he was with. It's a word that's sometimes even used to describe sexual intimacy. He was, he was, he couldn't have been any closer to her. He was right there with her. This was not Eve's fault. Remember, Adam was put in the garden in Genesis chapter 2 to work it and to keep it. That was his job, to work it and to keep it. Keep didn't just mean like upkeep, you know, I just patch the drywall and change a few light bulbs. Think goalkeeper, like in soccer, sorry, football. Think goalkeeper. They're keeping the goal. They're, they're not dust, you know, painting the, the posts. They're protecting the goal. Adam's job was to protect. This conversation never should have happened. Adam should have just stepped right in front of Eve and said, excuse me, talking snake. It's kind of weird. I'm not sure what's going on here. But get off my porch. You are not welcome here. And yet Adam who was called upon to love and to lead and to sacrifice and to serve was silent. So this isn't just Eve's fault. Adam is right there with her. But look at what lured her in. Now, don't miss this. It says that she, she, says, it says that she saw in verse 6 that it was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes. Now, look over to the, neck, to the column to the left in your Bibles. Look at chapter 2. Verse 9, look at the description of all of the fruit of the garden. Out of the ground, the Lord God made, this is Genesis 2, verse 9, to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. So let me break this down for you in a chart. On the left side of the chart, this is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's good for food, it's a delight to the eyes, and it's desire to be uh, to make one wise. But every tree of the garden was good for food and pleasant to the sight. Every other tree. You see, some people think that, you know, Eve was like a health nut and it was good for food. I I need something to to cut down on the, I need an an antioxidant or something like that. And so this, it's it's a a tree. And so I I need it because it's good for food. Or maybe she was a foodie. I can make it into some sort of reduction and have artichoke hearts and avocado. And it's good for food. Every tree, every tree was full of fruit that was good for fruit, delicious, nutritious. It was and also a delight to the eyes. Maybe Eve had an eye for the aesthetic and she just couldn't believe how beautiful the fruit was of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But there was nothing about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that made that fruit more beautiful than everything else that God had already provided. Do you see? There was, God was not holding out on Adam and Eve. Every tree was good for food. Every tree was a delight to the eye. What pushed Eve over the edge? It was that it was to be desired to make one wise. It was the desire to become wise. Now, again, we got to step into the shoes of the original audience. These rescue Hebrew slaves were wandering through the wilderness on their way to 
the promised land. That word desire in verse nine is an important word. The Hebrew word is hamad. They had just heard the word hamad thundered from the voice of God at the top of Mount Sinai because commandment number 10 is you shall not hamad your neighbor's house. You shall not hamad your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything else that is your neighbor. Hamad is the word for covet. What does it mean to covet your neighbor's house or your neighbor's wife or your neighbor's donkey? That's a nice donkey. I gotta have it. Something I've never said. Coveting is wanting something that doesn't belong to you. You want to borrow your neighbor's donkey? Just ask. You're not going to borrow his wife, but you could borrow his donkey. You could borrow, you know, have some of his servants lend you a hand or his ox. If you need to stay at his house for a little while, if you have a good neighbor, ask your neighbor, but don't covet it. Don't desire it to take it on your own. The same is true about wisdom. If you want wisdom, don't go to some tree. Don't eat some fruit. Don't think that you can get wisdom in and of yourself. Go to James chapter one. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God. Who does what? Who gives generously without reproach. If you want wisdom, give it to the God who gives us everything else. Give us to the God who filled the tree, the the garden with trees. Because he is is the father of lights who gives what? Every good and perfect gift. So if you lack, so the problem here was that Eve wanted something on her own terms, something that she could have had. If she wanted to be wise, she didn't need to go to the tree. She could have just gone to God. You know, Uh, uh, Romans chapter one gives us sort of this um, like Cole's notes version. Some of you are too young to know what Cole's notes means. It's like a summary. Wikipedia. Okay. This is the Wikipedia, uh, a summary of, of for although they, of what happened in Genesis chapter three, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. They didn't give thanks for all of the trees but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. The desire to become wise, they became fools. And then Solomon wrote in uh, the book of Proverbs, not the Solomon on the soundboard, but the Solomon, the former king of of Israel. Uh, Proverbs 1.7 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. If you want wisdom, that's not a bad thing. Just don't go to the tree to get it. You don't get it on your own terms. Just fear God. And then Proverbs 3 says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. You see, Adam and Eve, they weren't just rebels. They were Their desire wasn't just to have an insurrection. Their desire was to become legislators. Their aim in Genesis 3 was not just law-breaking. Their aim was law-making. They wanted to be the ones who make the rules. 
Have you noticed that sort of what's happening in our world culturally? It sort of started like with this idea, especially with, in terms of the sexual revolution, this idea that you can do whatever you want and it's freedom and it's breaking down of restrictions. But have you noticed how many rules are getting created along the way? Don't say this and don't think that and don't believe that. All of these, and the rules, have you noticed that the rules are continually changing and morphing? Why? Because they're not the rock solid, unchanging truths of God's word. It's the wisdom of man. And it keeps changing and ebbing and flowing. Be not wise in your own eyes. Trust in the Lord. We are living in a world where, yeah, we have a knowledge of good and evil. We have the map, but we don't know which way's north. And we don't know any of the landmarks. And so we're just drifting from place to place. Then look with me at, at verse 7. It says, Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. You see, here's the, the scary thing. Every lie is based off a half-truth. Satan didn't tell Eve, if you eat the fruit, you'll become a purple flying hippopotamus, right? That's just absurd. He told her half-truths. And what's most disturbing about Genesis chapter 3 is not that what Satan said didn't come true. It's what Satan said did come true. Because he told half-truths. And every lie involves some sort of truth or else it's not worth saying. Lie number one, you will surely not die. It is true. Adam and Eve did not immediately die physically. It was a half truth. Genesis 3, 4, your eyes will be opened. Look at Genesis 3, 7. Then their eyes were opened. The lie was that when their eyes were opened, Adam and Eve were going to like what they saw. But they felt shamed, and they're like, I don't like what I see. I don't like you seeing me, so I've got to cover myself. It was a half-truth. Their eyes were indeed opened, and they did in some ways become like God, knowing good and evil. The man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, but they didn't know how to process all of the information that they now had access to. Now they're hiding from one another and hiding from God. Theologian T. Desmond Alexander uh, sums it up uh, in, in this way on the next slide. It says, in light of their royal status and their divine commission, remember God blessed them. He gave them dominion. That's royal status, the authority to rule and divine commission to fill the earth and subdue it, to rule over the animals. It is especially noteworthy that Adam and Eve obey the serpent's instructions rather than those of God should be a capital G. But submitting to the serpent, Adam and Eve failed to exercise their God-given dominion over this. That should be crafty animal. I really shouldn't make my slides so late at night. Sorry about this. It's a crafty animal and God with a capital G. Let me, you know, just show, show you in another diagram. Here's what's happening. This is the original created order. God was going to rule over humans and humans were going to rule over all the creatures. That's Genesis 1. Have dominion. But what happens in Genesis 3, you have an animal, the serpent, ruling over the humans. 
And they're trying to overthrow the throne of God, trying to be like God. And then just look with me at verse 8. It says, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. We get this sad picture after the fact of what life in Eden was like cool of the day. It's, it's the Hebrew word there is wind. It could be translated spirit. God was walking in the spirit in the garden. Not only were Adam and Eve in perfect relationship with each other, they were in perfect relationship with God. So he comes, he comes walking in the garden in the cool of the day. It says the man and the wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord of God among the trees of the garden. They could hide among the trees because there were so many, so many that were full of fruit that was good for food and delight to the eyes. And now, rather than running to the God who had given them all of this, they were hiding from them. And then God, in verse 9, it says, the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? I told you that this was sort of a bad news message, but it's also good news. <laughs> it's good news and that we can, we can better understand where temptation comes from and how to fight it, doubting God's goodness and, and denying his word and desiring his throne. But it's also good news in verse 9 in that God came looking for the rebels. You know, like when your little toddler gets her hands on some Skittles, and she doesn't come right in front of her mother and be like, right? If you do, you've got a, like a really challenging future ahead of you. When the toddler gets her hands on some Skittles, what does she do? She finds like any nook or cranny, you know, the, the, the space between the bed and her dresser. And she's just hiding there. And mom comes into the room and says, hey, hey, where are you? And, and what are you doing? The mom knows where the little girl is. The mom knows what the little girl is doing. The questions are not because the mom needs information. The, the question is to get a conversation going between parent and child so that that child can learn from that. And that's what God does. He comes looking. And he came most clearly in his son, Jesus Christ. And he wanted people to listen to his son. He wanted people to follow his son. And, and just like Adam and Eve were created to live in a father-daughter relationship with God, that, that was perfectly pictured in the way that Jesus, the son, related to the father. And Jesus gets baptized, the Holy Spirit descends on him, and God the father, like a, like a proud new dad, you know, it's a boy. He says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And then immediately following, as soon as he's given that designation of sonship, he goes out in the wilderness. He's not, so, he's not in paradise. He's not surrounded by trees that are good for food and a delight for the eyes. Quite in contrast to Adam, he, he hasn't eaten for, for 40 days. I mean, I haven't eaten since 8 in the morning. I'm already starting to get angry up here. Jesus had 40 days. Adam and Eve, they're eating fruit while the serpent is talking to them. 
And the same character makes a reappearance, this, this, this talking snake, this deceiver, this accuser, Satan, tempts the Son of God three times. And he says something really curious in one of the temptations. Look, look with me on the screen at Luke chapter four. It says, and the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me. Delivered to Satan. All the kingdoms, of, who, who delivered all the kingdoms of the world? Who was supposed to rule over all the kingdoms of the world? Adam and Eve. And they forfeited their inheritance of ruling over all of the kingdoms of the world by giving into the temptation. And we forfeit all that God has for us when we give in to temptation. Satan says, I give it to whom I will. One time I gave it to a guy in Egypt. He even put a snake right on his head and he ruled all the kingdoms of the world for a season. And another time I gave it to Nebuchadnezzar. Another time I gave it to Assyria. Another time to the Romans. And I give it to whoever I will. But all you got to do is worship me and it will be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Jesus knew the goodness of God. Jesus never doubted God's goodness. Jesus never denied God's word. And Jesus never desired God's throne because he already belongs there. And he is the very word of God. And he is the ultimate expression of God's goodness. Loved ones, do you see that Jesus succeeded where Adam failed? I could take you like theologically to places like Romans chapter five and first Corinthians 15 to talk about the first Adam and then Jesus being like the second Adam and the man from dust versus the man from heaven. And we used to bear Adam's image and now we bear Jesus image, but time won't allow us to do that. So let me just take you to one more place. Hebrews chapter four, verses 15 and 16. Hebrews chapter four, verses 15 and 16. It says this, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, tempted as Adam and Eve were, and yet without sin. So let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. So loved ones, we, we, we can go back to Genesis chapter three. We can learn all sorts of things about the nature of temptation. We can learn about how temptation works in our own hearts. But loved ones, the place where we need to go ultimately is before the throne. The one who didn't desire the throne of God, but who is entitled to the throne of God. Because equality with God, Philippians 2, was not a thing to be grasped, not a thing to be coveted, because he already had equality with God. And yet he came to this earth and lived among us and was tempted in every way and yet without sin. And we can come to his throne to receive mercy and to find grace. 
Loved ones, we can definitely receive mercy and find grace for sins in our past, things that have happened years ago, things that happened a few minutes ago. We can come before that throne of grace, confess our sin, and he's faithful and just to forgive us. We can find mercy and find grace in those moments. But loved ones, mercy and grace is also available on the temptation side. The mercy and grace is also available to us when we are tempted. Jesus, help me to trust in the goodness of God. Help me to trust in God's abundant generosity. Help me to believe in your word. When when Jesus was tempted with the serpent, he was tempted. And every time he quoted scripture, Jesus, teach me your word. Write your word on my heart. Transform me from the inside out. So whether we are facing temptation or whether we've fallen into temptation, the mercy and the grace of Jesus Christ is made available to us because he was tempted in every way and yet didn't sin and yet went to the cross as that perfect substitute to die in our place to die in the place of Adam and Eve for their sin, to die in the place of Ted Duncan for his sin, to die in the place of each and every one of us for our sin so that we could receive mercy and grace. And rather than trying to steal his throne, we can come before his throne and find mercy and grace. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus, in the name of that great and awesome high priest who loved us and who gave himself for us. Lord, I pray that when temptation comes, and we know it's not a matter of if, and it's a matter of when, and we know that because of the, the devil, because of this world, because of our own flesh, we know, God, that temptation comes at us in relentless repetition and in new and different ways. So God, I pray that you would equip us for the battle, that we would be trusting in your goodness, that we would be filled with a confidence and an understanding of what your word teaches. And God, I also pray that we would be content in our status as creatures, content to let you dictate how we are to live and how we are not to live, to let you to set the laws because you are sovereign and to you belongs all power and all authority. God, we look to you, we love you, we worship you. We come before your throne to find mercy and grace. In Jesus' name we pray. For more resources and information about Hope Church Toronto West, please visit hopechurchtw.ca.